Well, if you guys can think all the way back, how long has it been? Three weeks, four weeks, five weeks? It feels like an eternity at this point. We only just started to introduce what the church is. And part of that introduction was identifying some misconceptions that come with the church. The main things that we should have taken away from our last Sunday evening meeting was that the church is a called out group of people. Called out for God and working alongside one another for God's glory. When we look at it in that way, understanding the church is a little bit more complicated than just saying that it's the people. And the reason for that is the church is a complicated organism. I say organism, not organization. A lot of times we try to apply business language to the church because there's a lot of business that needs to be taken care of and there's leadership and there's administration and there's decisions that need to be made. But the church is not an organization. If it's the people, if the church is the people, that means that it's living, changing. It is an organism like you and I. It's something that takes shape and moves. It's something that pursues and has a mission. In fact, this same metaphor for the church was used by the New Testament authors, most notably Paul, who in Second Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, in First, I'm sorry, in First Corinthians chapter twelve, presents this analogy of the church, saying that it is the body of Christ. Now, when we talk about the church and the way that she takes shape, there is that kind of practical application. How do churches grow? That's an important question, isn't it? Is it easy? Do church planners have an easy job? What about church members? Do they have an easy job? I don't think they do. When we look at, that's kind of small to see. When we look at a church's life cycle, it starts out with a launch, and then it begins to build momentum and growth as people come in and join with the congregation. There's strategy for more growth as those people realize they can work together. And then there's this kind of achieved health and a church is organized. Most churches follow this life cycle, and you'll notice it doesn't just go up. It also comes down. Because when the church reaches its climax, this pinnacle moment of adequacy, we no longer operate in a state of strategic growth. We don't longer operate with a sense of urgency that's coming off of all of our momentum. Instead, we operate with a sense of maintenance, preservation. Eventually, the church finds itself on life support. And then churches close. I like to look at this picture from the perspective of the generations that are a part of planting churches. I think when you look at this first generation that comes alongside to join a church, you see this upward trajectory. And these are the people that are a part of the fight. This first generation fights to discover and to establish truth among their people. And they have this strong sense of momentum as they work together to build the church. The second generation is there for parts of the fight. And ultimately, they are fighting to maintain and to proclaim the truth that was discovered by the first generation. 
It's this third generation that's concerning. This third generation is so far removed from the struggle that was needed in order for a church to take shape that they really don't have any skin in the game. Rather than being a part of it, they become indifferent towards the nature of truth or even the ministry of the church. And indifference, loved ones, is the hardest obstacle in any pastoral ministry. This third generation gets so caught up in all of the little pieces of the things that they were taught that they lose sight of the overall mission and purpose behind the church. I think what's most frustrating about this third generation is that the child of indifference is also criticism. Most people who develop this, uh, enter into this third generation, if they stay in church at all, are oftentimes the most critical. They're no longer focused on what are the foundational truths that built this church, but they're interested in all the minute details. I knew a guy, I worked with him several years ago, and he was so negative about everything. I used to joke that he could walk into a beautiful meadow with flowers blooming, birds singing, and he'd be the guy that could find a pile of manure. The church is never going to be perfect. That's all right. It's, it's more about perfect trajectory than it is perfect location. If we can say that our, we won't be perfect until we're in heaven, our real aim and our real goal is not to be perfectly heavenly, but it's always to be facing in that direction. With this analogy that Paul gives us of the church being a body, I want to start to put together a picture of what does it mean to study the anatomy of the church. Now, anatomy is the, what we use, the, the word for the study of the body and how all of the different systems in the body work together. What does it look like to look at the anatomy of the church? If it's a body, it has different components that work together to make the church what it is. It has a skeletal system. It has internal systems. It has muscular systems, and it ultimately has the flesh. That's the part that everyone can see. The skeletal system, I think, refers to what gives it structure, what gives it its framework. When we talk about vertebrate animals, their skeletal system is what gives them their shape and their form. The internal systems, though, are just as important. If you take away or if you take an animal and you just give them a skeleton, would they be alive? They have fluids and organs and other things that need to work together. I think the internal systems of the church are the attitudes that the church has and nurtures and fosters and also discourages. But just that's not enough. I mean, this is the problem with the third generation that I introduced, right? If we just have a good framework and we just have good attitudes, is the church really accomplishing what it's set, to be, set here to do? We need a muscular system. This is what lets the church go. This is the functions and the behaviors of the church that ultimately allows her to accomplish her reason for being here, to proclaim the gospel to the lost, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and above all else, to glorify God. 
And of course, there's the flesh, which is the visible part of the church, the programs and the ministries that we often look at. I want to dive into each of these, and I mentioned before we got started, I am concerned for time, so if it seems like I am racing along, I probably am. Um, I do not want to rush, but I'm also here to answer questions anytime. But if you need me to slow down, please do not hesitate to let me know, either by raising your hand or throwing both your hands in the air like this, and I'll catch on, or just say something. We're a small group, so we can do that. Let's look first at the skeletal system, the skeletal system of the church. This is the foundation, the structure, those elements of the church that cannot change. These are the unalterable, non-negotiable things that a church needs. In order to be a successful and functioning church, we have to have a solid skeleton. What is that skeleton? What are those unnegotiable things, those those, I'm sorry, non-negotiable things, those unaltering chain things. The first one is a high view of God. I don't think the church gets anywhere if we do not have a high view of God. There's lots of ways that people have, I think, accidentally made God smaller than He is. We elevate our commitment to Him. We elevate our service to Him. We elevate our knowledge of Him. But ultimately, the only person that gets things done in a spiritual world is God. He's the one that changes us. He's the one that changes everything. The church must have a high view of God and I think constantly be in pursuit of a higher view of God. The Bible teaches us about man's nature that we are incapable of perfectly comprehending the things of God. That means when you think that you've got a big enough picture of who God is, it's still smaller than He actually is. We should always be chasing a higher view of God. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. In Proverbs 9, verse 10. This is not just a foundational element. It is the very framework of the church. We believe that God is the one that leads His people. The church exists to know God and to glorify Him forever. We can get so busy serving that we don't want to sit at Jesus' feet. This is ultimately the error that I was focusing on in our sermon this morning. We're familiar, of course, with other ways that people do this. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 and 42, we have the picture of busy Martha working to serve Jesus while Mary was content to sit with Him. The church that has a high view of God clings to His promises, clings to His presence and His comfort that is in their life. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's the promise found in the book of James. Something that we have to remember. The church will only be as close to God as so far as we get out of our own way. God is not far from us. He's near us. He's all present. That means there is nowhere we can go to run from Him. When we feel alienated or separated from God, it is not because He has withdrawn His presence from us. It is because we have built boundaries and walls and borders that separate us from His presence. Second, 
The skeletal system of the church refers to our, the absolute authority of Scripture. Unalterable, non-negotiable, this is the authority for the church. People often disregard Scripture for the sake of comfort. In our world today, there's a certain list of trigger issues that people try to avoid. Discussions about abortion, homosexuality, divorce, and remarriage, premarital sex are all examples of things that people simply do not want to talk about. In fact, they're so controversial that some people don't even want to talk about them in church. The Bible confronts our life. In order to be a church, we have to submit to what the Bible says about all of these things. There is a danger that is present in some Christian communities today where they accept and tolerate things that are called new revelations. Is everyone familiar with what I'm talking about? Certain groups believe because God can work in any way that He chooses, that He can give an individual a prophetic word today that is authoritative for the church. The danger of such teaching is that... Well, let me back up. And I will first say that I refused to put God in a box. I think God can work through it, whatever means He wants to work. But I will not say that something that is not normative is authoritative for every single Christian. We find many examples of Scripture of God giving people particular burdens. We even find conflicts among Christians in the New Testament after the church was established where they disagreed on God's will in different and various issues. God does work in individuals' lives. I believe He does speak to individuals. But what He says to an individual is not the authority for every other person. The only authority for all Christians is the Word of God. In fact, looking at the different arguments that existed in the early church, Paul writes in Romans 14, verses 5 through 12, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, glorifies God. While the other one abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The Scripture, the Bible, is the only authority for all believers. We must submit to its truth in all issues. And in order to do that, we must know what the Word says. Jesus taught that man cannot live on bread alone, quoting from the Old Testament in Matthew 4. Knowing this, we must not only submit to the Word, but we must commit to knowing it and always know it increasingly more. Here's the problem with most Christians today. We know the Word, and we're content with that. 
we should always be committed to knowing the Word more. It never runs out. It never stops. A third element to the skeletal system in the church is sound doctrine. Now, doesn't that sound exciting? Sound doctrine. Let me explain what I mean by this because I'm not necessarily referring to the church's doctrinal statement. Our church adheres to the Baptist Missionary Association of America's adopted doctrinal statement, which by comparison is very small. It's not exhaustive, and it's not intended to be exhaustive of everything that the church believes. In fact, the explicit purpose of our doctrinal statement is to establish fellowship with other churches that we cooperate in ministry together. That's why we have a doctrinal statement. If our church had a doctrinal statement for members, we could be as narrow as we wanted to be on fine doctrinal issues or as broad as we were comfortable being. Now, there's a fine balance in that. Do we be broad or do we be narrow? We have to understand that when we talk about doctrine, not everything is an essential. Not everything's an essential. We don't have to agree on every point of doctrine. Matter of fact, you may think that you agree with me on every point of doctrine, but if we sat down together and walked through everything that I believed line by line, point by point to the secondary issues and the tertiary issues after that, we would find things to disagree about. And that's okay. We can still have fellowship with people that do not agree exactly as we do. The point in saying that sound doctrine is the skeletal system of the church is that we develop doctrine together. Where does theology happen? A lot of people say it takes place in the seminary or the missions office. There's only one entity on earth given authority by heaven to do theology. Do you know what that institution's called? It's called the church. The church is the one who performs the act of theology, that develops doctrine, that identifies who God is and what He does. In order to get past just what the teaching of the church is, we have to agree on how we do this. Writing to Timothy, Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. Paul's encouragement to his young protege was simply that if you put sound doctrine in front of the people of God, they will grow and you will grow too. That's a promise. That's not just something that Paul is writing, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, he said, if you put sound doctrine in front of the sheep and they eat from it, your church will grow. Sound doctrine is essential to the health of the church. I mentioned that our doctrinal statement's not exhaustive. I mentioned that sound doctrine doesn't refer to what the doctrine is necessarily. Let me explain to you what I mean by my method. When I am doing theology, doing theology, trying to say something about God, that's all theology is, my first step is to start in prayer. Theology is ultimately surrendering to God. 
It is ultimately surrendering to what he says, setting aside what I want to say about him and trying to discover who he is as he's revealed himself to me. You don't get to know your spouse or your friends by writing out what you'd like them to be like. You get to know them by spending time with them and finding out who they actually are. We do the same thing with God. My next step is to collect biblical materials, to look all over the Bible, whether with the use of a concordance or with careful study, to pull together all the references to a particular subject, whether that's what is hell, what is salvation, how are people saved, what happens after death, what is sin, who are the angels, what do they look like. I thought it was interesting, Lee Ellen mentioned uh, being confronted with the biblical image of an angel this week. Do you realize angels don't have bodies? Just a fun fact. I wanted to throw it out there because it was on my mind. Who is the Holy Spirit? How does He interact with people? What is the position of the believer? What is the nature of the flesh? What is the world? And how are Christians to interact with them? All of these different areas require all the biblical data to be pulled together. The next step is to try and unify them to bring these together, to admit that they do not contradict one another, and so I have to line them up and understand them as properly as I can, making note of things that seem to be discordant and analyzing how they do not conflict with the other ones. My next step is to analyze each text. After this, I can begin to piece together what the Bible teaches about a given subject. Maybe it's parenting. How should a father discipline his children? Then I examine tradition. With this biblical data behind me, that is my foundation and my starting point, and that as my authority, I look at the wisdom of tradition, and I ask, am I missing anything? Have we been wrong somewhere? I consult other cultural perspectives. I do this through research looking up what the church is saying in Europe or in Asia. We believe that there's one Lord, right? One God. We believe that there's believers all over the world. That means that there's wisdom in looking beyond our own cultural context to see how God is working because on these things that we share, God is evidently speaking. I identify the essence of the doctrine and I make a universal statement. I pull from the experience, from my experience and from nature to affirm these things and help to explain these because theology isn't just something we do in our head, but it's something that we experience. I express my doctrinal position for today in the form of application. I identify a central motif or connection. Most of the time when I'm performing theology, my central motif is simply the gospel. I think everything points to the gospel. I think you have to understand the gospel to be able to know God. And then I, here's a fun word, stratify the topics. Some things are crucial, absolutely crucial. Some things, if not carefully observed, are heresy, which means they threaten salvation. Some things are secondary. I believe secondary things are the pieces of doctrine that define who we can have fellowship and who we cannot have fellowship with. Secondary issues are important. Just because I believe someone's a Christian 
doesn't mean I can do ministry alongside them. For example, well, I won't even give you any examples because I'll offend somebody. Secondary issues allow us to work together. And then there are tertiary issues, things that we can disagree on and still have fellowship with each other. We shouldn't avoid pursuing, understanding, even tertiary issues. Because it's through knowing these that we develop a closer sense and walk with God. This is the work of the church. Our fourth point in the skeletal structure is personal holiness. Again, I think this is unaltering and non-negotiable. In fact, I think Scripture is clear on this. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in fear of God. The church must be committed to personal holiness. We've got a nice list going so far. I only have one more thing to add. So far, we've said as non-negotiable items, the church must have a high view of God. We must be submitted to the authority of Scripture. We must have sound doctrine. We must be committed to personal holiness. And my last point here is spiritual authority. If the church does not have spiritual authority, it is not a church. I said there's only one institution in the world that is given heavenly authority to perform the work of theology. You realize how serious that is? There's only one institution in the world that is given authority on earth over the life of believers. Do you realize how serious that is? The church has to have spiritual authority. Pastors must speak from authority. That's why we rely on the word. Christians must rely on authority. That's how they give up the things that they don't want to give up because they submit to authority. This is something for the whole church to recognize. And let me say this. Who is our spiritual authority but the head of the church, Jesus Christ? His mediation is through godly elders. The structure of the church depends upon the way that God designed his church to work. With instituting elders, those who were called to teach and preach the word of God, he said Christ is the ultimate authority and he mediates this authority through godly elders. You can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 13 through 14, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 and 17 to find more about that. Elders may have different gifts. They may be administrators. They may be caregivers. They may be teachers. But ultimately, every elder of the church of God is equal in their standing as a leader in the church. The office of elder is the single office of the church that constitutes leadership for her people. That covers the skeletal system. Are we ready to look at the internal systems? Are you excited? So the skeletal systems, the foundation, the structure, the shape of the church. The internal issues or the internal systems refer to the attitudes. And this is a long list, so I'm going to go fast. Buckle in. These are the internal systems. 
The skeleton provides a framework, but the body cannot live with the skeleton alone. A physical body has organs and fluids in it that help keep the body alive and functioning. These are the spiritual attitudes of the church that help to keep it alive. The church simply cannot survive unless these attitudes are nurtured. A person is capable of doing good things without good attitudes. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. There's a lot of people that do good things that do not have good attitudes. What's different about Christians is our attitude always precedes our behavior. This is the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Loved ones, I'm going to elaborate on this list just a little bit to make it more clear. But ultimately, understand every word I'm about to present to you is taken from this passage of Scripture. I want you to know how important these attitudes are. If the right kind of spiritual attitudes are present in a church, the structure will take care of itself because spirit-controlled people are going to do spirit-led things. The first one is obedience. Obedience. Obedience is the all-pervasive attitude that makes other spiritual virtues possible. Behavior without biblically-based attitude of, of obedience is meaningless. Internal, heartfelt obedience is better than any external, legalistic act of worship. 1 Samuel 15 verse 22 teaches us that the Lord does not delight in burnt offerings as much as he does an obedient heart. It teaches us that God cares more about the way that we approach him than what we do for him. If we aren't faithful to obey God's word to our lives, we'll eventually arrive at spiritual retirement. Do you know what I mean by that? I've seen this a lot. There was... Actually, this isn't good, but I'll share it anyway because it's funny. There was a family at the past church that I was a part of the pastoral staff at, and we called them the roller coaster family because they were faithful. They were in church every single week, Sunday, both services, Wednesday night. They came for special events. They were very involved, but it was evident that their spiritual health was either increasing or staying the same. And so their spiritual walk with God, it would seem like out of nowhere there would be an eruption of energy and their spirituality, the way that they talked about God, the way that they served would just skyrocket. And then something would happen and all of that energy would be gone. A lot of us enter into that kind of spiritual retirement we serve with a lot of energy and then we sit back and let other people do it. If we are not faithful to obey God's word, we'll eventually arrive at spiritual retirement. We'll stop looking at the church as our calling and simply look at it as a place that we go. Second is humility. Humility. Do you know that you have nothing to offer God? 
I get frustrated when I hear people say, man, that person has so much leadership capability. That person could really be a soul winner for Christ if only someone could give them the gospel in a compelling way. God's capable of saving whoever he wants. Period. We have nothing to offer God. There is a reason that Jesus taught in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We should desire to be humble. That doesn't mean that we undervalue ourselves, because in Christ we are eternally priceless. But we must be careful to always remember that Christ is the one who made us priceless. Third is love. Love is so important for the church to be healthy and successful and growing and blessed. Not the kind of emotional love that we often conflate love with, but the kind of self-sacrificing love that becomes second nature to people when they fully embrace it. I think of love expressed in the church as simply the giving of yourself, being sacrificial. When you see someone with a need, you're willing to fill it. Jesus taught, I'm sorry, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If the church does not have love, all of the work that we do is meaningless. Fourth is unity. Jesus was praying to the Father when he said, May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christians should not be satisfied with disunity. We should pursue unity. We should look for unity. We should strive for unity. We know that no one's perfect. There are always going to be things that people disagree about. Nevertheless, when Christians come together, they should be able to get on their knees with one another and bow in the presence of our Lord because there is but one Lord, one salvation, and one baptism. A willingness to serve. A healthy church has an attitude of a willingness to serve. There are too many people in the church today that say that I don't know where I can serve. If you are filled with the Spirit, God wants to cultivate through you a ministry that is essential for your church. I believe that. I believe that if you are filled with the Spirit, God wants to use you. In fact, I believe that he is nurturing that to the best of his ability in how much you will let him. The church must make it possible for people to find their place in ministry, even if that means creating a space for them. God has a plan. Man is simply following it. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, As have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, 
if service in his, in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We must use the gifts that God gives us. We must be faithful to serve. We must be willing to serve. Sixth is joy. Christians are supposed to be a joy-filled people. You know what joy is? Joy is an outward expression of what God has done in our lives. When writing to his little children, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. In Romans, Paul said that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When people willingly serve and use the gifts God gave them, they experience joy. People who are committed to being introspective are always trying to meet their own needs and solve their own problems, and therefore, they become ingrown, self-contemplating, miserable human beings. Be willing to serve as an expression of your joy. Seventh is peace. If joy is the outward expression of what God has done in our lives, peace is simply the inward expression of it. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth again, God has called us to peace in chapter 7, verse 15. To the church in Philippi, he encouraged us to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. Christians must be a peace-filled people, not doubting, not worrying, not overwhelmed, but striving and trusting that God always has all things in control. Seventh, I'm sorry, sixth, seventh, eighth, eighth is thankfulness. I told you it'd be a list. I was studying the Psalms. I always knew that Christians should be a thankful people. There's commands in Scripture about that, aren't there? Be filled with thanksgiving. Always give thanks. When studying the Psalms, I realized what that meant. This constant cycle that the psalmist seems to go to. My world's falling apart, God. Help me. God, thanks for letting me ask you that question. God, you're awesome. There's a complaint, and then there's thanksgiving, and then there's praise. If you really want to be a church that is giving praise and glory to God, that means even in trials and circumstances and whatever we're going through, we're able to turn to Him in praise because we have a thanksgiving heart. Ninth, self-discipline. Self-discipline. Paul uses the analogy of a marathon runner when he describes the spiritual walk of believers. He says that we should be careful to be self-controlled in all things. The church should be self-controlled, self-disciplined. We should be an accountable people. Some of you are running out of room in your notes, and I apologize. I should have warned you. I think I did tell you it was a long list. We should be a self, an accountable people. Every church member is accountable to every other church member. 
Every single one. We must be a people who are concerned with one another. There's a responsibility that comes with accountability. Just think about what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when He comes to Matthew chapter 17 and He says, You hypocrite! How can you point out the speck of dust in your brother's eye without first removing the plank in your own? Do you know why we should be a self-disciplined people? So that we're able to help our brother and sister when they need it. Because we're accountable to one another and we rely on one another. We have to be sure that our life is in accord with God and we must rely on each other to help us make sure we're watching our blind spots. The most honoring thing a Christian can do is restore another believer. If a church member isn't seen in church for week after week, you should go to them and ask them where they've been. Better yet, you should confront them with Scripture and say, you're not obeying Hebrews 10, which says that we should be faithful to assemble together. You should reprove them and correct them, and in a loving way, draw them back to the church. This isn't something a pastor can do on their own. As a matter of fact, it's not wise that you would let the pastor be the bad guy. Just saying. Just some wisdom. And I'm not saying that selfishly. I'm supposed to be able to speak into people's lives. If I have to be the only bad guy, who's going to listen? That's why this is an internal system in the church, why we're accountable to one another. We have to be a forgiving people. If we're human, and I know most of us are, you guys, I know this is a long list, but you can wake up. I said, if we're human, and I know most of us are. Thank you. We will make mistakes. We will hurt one another. We will sin. The church is a forgiven people. We're called out because God forgave us. We must be willing to forgive one another. This isn't something that the church does on our own, but this is something that we do as a community. Do you realize in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus asks, forgive us our debts as we also forgive one another? The stewardship of forgiveness is the ministry of the church. It's part and parcel to who we are. It's what we do. If we can't live forgiveness as a church, we will never be able to preach an effective gospel because it will be undermined by our own character. We must live with a sense of dependence. Dependence upon God. If a church is not careful and mindful, we can eliminate God from our ministries altogether. Do you know that? We can do all the right things and fall into a routine and there can be no God there whatsoever. If we are not a dependent people, constantly remembering that God is the one that has provided all things for us. This is the reason we take up an offering on Sunday morning, people. Because we acknowledge that we are dependent upon God. Think about this. When the people of Israel came into the promised land, God told the people that He was giving them a great and splendid city, which they did not build, with houses full of all good things which they did not fill, and hewn cisterns which they did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which they did not plant, so that they could eat and be satisfied. The people of Israel failed because they forgot that. They failed because they came into a state of routine and they forgot that they were dependent upon God. It's easy to get absorbed with activities. We must maintain an attitude of dependence on God. 
We must be a flexible people. You know the famous last words of the church? We never tried that before. Acts 16 is a great example of what it means to be flexible, and I reference that because you're familiar with it. Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, but the Spirit didn't allow him to. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow him to. God's people have to be flexible to His plan, trusting that He is the one that is directing them. We must be willing to say, God, we depend on You to lead us, and we're willing to move wherever You take us. We must live with the desire to grow. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this is a command found in Scripture. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a command, not an option. Not something we can choose to do or disobey, but a command that is given to us to observe. We must be a faithful people. Many Christians are spiritual sprinters. They can run, they can get involved, and then they back away. But the truth is, to be a true, maturing Christian, we have to be stewards of the things that God gives us. That means we cannot start with a lot of energy and then taper off. But we must be willing to run the long race. And finally, thank you. We have to be a hope filled people. We have to be a hope filled people, trusting that no matter what happens, God is in control. Practically speaking, that means that we shouldn't become too obsessed with earthly things. We shouldn't become fixated on the newspapers. We should be focused on the book. I have a little bit of time left. We're going to look at one more system. So far, we've looked at the internal system of the church or the skeletal system, those non-negotiable things. I don't think unnegotiable is a word, is it? It should be if it's not. Anyways, those non-negotiable things, the unalterable things. And we've looked at those certain attitudes that make the church what it is, what makes it capable of doing this. And we acknowledge that if we get all of, those, all of these attitudes right, that the structure will take care of itself. Because when we have these attitudes, we develop a high view of God. The muscular system is what puts ministry in action. This is what gets us moving. And there are 10 things on this list. And I have 10 minutes, so we're going to go fast. First is preaching and teaching. This one makes sense. This is the proclamation of God's Word. This is what the church is here to do. The church, and what Timothy was encouraged to do, was to rule the church with sound doctrine and teaching so that the people would be equipped for all their needs. Teaching and preaching is what the church is here for. But that doesn't cover all the bases. There's also a necessity to be involved in evangelism and mission. This isn't something that happens passively, friends. This is something, if we're going to do it, must be done intentionally. It's something that we must make time for. There's worship. Coming together to praise God. It's the heartblood of the church. Do we worship together? 
When you come to church, do you really think about the songs that you're singing or meditate on the things of God that you are hearing? Do we come with a worshipful heart? There's prayer. Easiest one to neglect. It's selfless. Real prayer is selfless. It's not about I. When you look at the Lord's Prayer, how many of you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many times does the Lord's Prayer use the word I? Anyone? Zero? How many does it use the word we or our? Forgive us our debts. Give us our daily bread. Prayer is selfless. True prayer embraces the kingdom of God. The model prayer demonstrates this. Discipleship. You know, I was looking at a study done years ago in the BMA. A survey was sent out asking people what they thought discipleship was and whether or not they saw it in their churches. And this was specific to BMA churches. Do you know what was fascinating about the study? The results showed that in our more mature than average denomination, association, I don't like the word denomination, association, our people knew what discipleship was. They simply weren't doing it. Discipleship is investing in people, equipping people. Discipleship is essential to getting the next generation for Christ. Shepherding, caring for people and meeting their needs. This is what the church does. And let me warn you, you cannot expect your church leaders, either your pastors or your deacons, to handle the needs of shepherding alone. This is the work of the church. The church must have a shepherding ministry. The church must build up families. God gave the world three institutions. The church, government, and the family. Satan works to attack all three, but I think he's been the most successful at infiltrating our families. The church must equip families to live godly ways the church must help shape the family according to God's plan. And what about training? How many of you are Sunday school teachers or have taught Sunday school in the past? Most of us raised our hand. How many of you have received training on how to teach a Sunday school class? Much less hands. The church must equip people that doesn't happen by accident any more than evangelism does. The church must have ministries that are dedicated to training people. Giving. If you stop giving, the church will die. Actually, I don't even believe that. Actually, I, don't even, I can't even say that wholeheartedly. I think God will take care of His church no matter what. But the church, as a function, as a muscular system operates through the giving of her people. 
Church members depend on the sacrificial and worshipful contributions of members. Last one is fellowship. It's easily neglected, and it's sometimes placed over the others. The word fellowship literally means common life together. The only time you see the people you go to church with is when you're at church. You are not truly in fellowship with them. Just by looking at how the, what the word means. Fellowship means common life together. We must be willing to open our lives up to one another. When we look at all of these different muscular systems, we can look at all the ministries of our church and ask, which muscle are they filling? I'd like to do that exercise, but this has been somewhat of a strange week. We have a lot of people that are out that need to be here. I asked you all last week and the week before that to write down a list of all the ministries of the church. For your homework this week, could I ask you to take that same list and to group them into these ten muscles to evaluate whether those attitudes that are essential are present in each of these ministries and to ensure that the skeletal structure of the church is not compromised by any one of them. Are there any final thoughts before we dismiss this evening? Well, that's a good question because the last one is the, the flesh, right? I'm glad you asked. The flesh is the outward appearance of the church. And you want to know a secret, Miss Barbara? It doesn't matter. People will judge the church by the programs that are in it. That's what they see. But God will not judge the church according to her faithfulness by the programs. He will judge it by that internal substance. That external system doesn't matter. Really glad you asked that question. Anything else? All right, let's pray and be dismissed. Next week we'll be looking, um, actually, next week we'll look at the homework. So next Sunday night what we'll do is we'll start off reviewing these systems. And if anyone wants a printout of this, I can, I can print out just the outline for you. And uh, we'll look at that alongside the ministries of our church. And we'll talk about it together before looking at the head of the church. Because nobody is complete without its head. So we'll look at the head of the church next week, which is also the foundation of the church. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together this evening. Give us safe travel home. Watch over those who aren't able to be here with us. Bring us together again soon, whether in this place or home with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.